0: Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Frances Simowitz. She's the CEO of NUMA New York, a global accelerator located here in New York City.
1: But you bring up one um, super interesting thing about the, the metrics within the innovation team. What do you see as potential metrics that should be measured? First, revenue or timelines or things like that. What what could be some insights to that?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, we work with a lot of different organizations, and they all measure it differently.
0: Mm-hmm. I find
2: that, again, the ones that are tied to revenue like struggle the most, or sure. even if they – aren't initially tied to revenue, right? So a lot of times they're measured by POCs, right? Like a certain number of engagements with startups. That's not always even the best way either because that's sort of an arbitrary number that's not necessarily tied to impact. Mm -hmm. Um, The organizations that I've seen do it best actually talk a lot about um, listening to customers, right? So, and sometimes that's like launching a product that like actually then people end up needing or using, whether or not that's tied to revenue initially or their ability to actually like spin off projects that are successful to other parts of the organization. But like, they'll talk a lot about um, it being really important for them to start listening first, like listening Mm -hmm. to the customers, listening to the actual needs. Is this a problem that we're actually solving? And that being sort of really more uh, what they are going after more so than something that's like, you know, we need to make a million dollars on a new revenue line. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and how are are some of the ways that people would actually measure that so that you get to the year's end and you can actually say, oh, we actually did deliver on that because uh, that gets into the soft skills area, which is exactly where we're we're pointing to, but it's inherently hard to measure.
2: It's really hard to measure. Right. Mm -hmm. And like some of them measure by like having a product in market, like whether or not generating revenue, is it like something that people are using? Um, does it actually solve a need? It's, it's hard to measure and it's, I don't think there's a perfect way to do it.
0: Yeah. Now how would you incentivize? So we're talking about improvisation, but more as a way to get people thinking through the lens of other people, empathy how that impacts the overall environment in which one can be creative and innovative and create a culture that is agile. How would you incentivize that on a day-to-day basis in say a company that's 500 plus people,
2: mm.
0: you know, it, I think this is where the, the challenge pops up. So, you know, if you were a man, like what would be the advice that you would give to a manager who's managing a small department? Like what, what could that person start to implement first to start to create those conditions.
2: Yeah. it's tough because like in that kind of an organization, you know, when you are that kind of manager, you have managers underneath you. And I think it starts with sort of changing the culture of the managers that are managing Mm -hmm. everyone else and understanding. It's also like listening, right? Like I think what people don't do first is they try to implement new rules or like new incentives to get people to, to behave a certain way without really listening first. And yep. so like doing uh, skip levels and being able to actually get feedback on how things are going and what's working, what's not working and the frustrations of those, um, underneath them, uh, n- and that doesn't get done enough. Um,
0: yeah, so. we always talk about, you have to yeah. first get out of the way what's in the way. Yeah. And most of the times, that's where the biggest fear point is, is giving people the permission to even express yeah. that, no, I hate my manager, or, <laughs> yeah, like, or that, no, the way we do things, like, I'm completely cynical and resigned here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If, you, if you have an organization that's not quite open yet, but you're trying to initiate that, and you say, okay, first step, go out and listen to people, see, what, see what's out there, mm-hmm. how... How do you go about doing that to actually, because you've already got a culture that's not going to express their feelings, how do you actually start to get the real feedback?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think also, again, it comes down to, like, people coming out of their comfort zones. Mm -hmm. Um, So getting people out of the actual building and talking to people, or even within each other, within the group themselves. So, like, Mm -hmm. when we organize these learning expeditions uh, for clients like Google, et cetera, and we're actually... On, it's like an inspirational basically tour where we're exploring different technology verticals. industry trends uh, Mm -hmm. and they're actually getting to speak with people that are in it. Like it's really great because you end up becoming inspired by different business models and things that are outside of your comfort zone. And then it's encouraged for them to come together, discuss that, um, have different ideas of what might work in their organizations and what might not work. Um, And it just creates this openness for dialogue um, Mm -hmm. and having really good sort of constraints on how dialogue is done, I think is important as well. Um, But I think it's really like, getting out of, like, the traditional day-to-day of the work and, you know, having a different sort of experience, you know, whether that's, like, a workshop even in, within its employees where new ideas are encouraged, which is hard in certain mm-hmm. organizations. Um, like, we have one exercise in improv called the Idea Cauldron where, like, you have a topic and you just, like, you have a cauldron of people around it and you just are able to just put whatever comes out in your mind in there and there's, like, nothing... Nothing can be possibly wrong, right? It's just an idea. But like creating, again, I think those environments for, you know, outside of the normal day-to-day is like an initial step.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Well, we were talking about the thinking hats and giving people permission to do that. Because that that usually does go right against people's normal day-to-day routine. Yeah. Which is just trying to shut down things that are not productive, focus on the things that are productive, and... You can get six months down the road and zoom out and realize that person may have been very busy but didn't accomplish much. So yeah. we talk about the thinking hats, which is you know giving people designated times in sessions to. Your job right now is just to be, a yes person.
1: So, speaking of yeah, De Bono's seven thing or six thinking caps, seven, six or seven now. Um, <laughs> you may have found <laughs> Are you cap. familiar with that?
2: No, I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> in the 70s,
1: yeah. So this was. Uh, a past company I worked for in facilitation used to use De Bono's thinking caps, which is Mm. he was a psychologist in the seventies that came out with a paper that talked about everybody walks in a room with one of the six or seven different thinking caps and they, the state of mind essentially. Mm. So, but within facilitation, we looked at using the yellow one, which was anything and everything's possible and a black one, which is critical. Mm. Meaning, Oh, we tried that before or the numbers don't add up. Like and the idea was that within facilitation and, and exercises within teams is you give space for both. Mm. So it allows and early on people are under, can an early uh, understand that there's space to do that. So that gives them the freedom to be able to do have that and look at anything as possible, knowing that later in, we can be hour. critical. <laughs> in can. a half an hour we can do that. So it gives space for each and they're aware of it. Which is a a very interesting way to help facilitate those process or that conversation. Yeah,
2: I love that because like you, there you know, improv is anything is possible, right? But like at the end of the day, with like business sense, there are objectives and things you need to be able to meet. And I think it is also comfortable for people to be like, "This isn't going to work," but also first having that creative sense, I think, is really important. Yeah, that's awesome.
1: You need to get everything out, like you said, the good, the bad, the ugly. They all have to get on the wall. Yep, and let's critique them. Sometimes you can combine what. Appears as a really bad idea with a really great idea, and all of a sudden turns into an outstanding idea with huge revenue possibilities. Yeah. But until you start looking at them in different ways, you you never know the possibilities.
2: Exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, we also we're kind of tying this back to uh, what what you do in the improv theater world is that space to be able to throw all that stuff up there is required, and yet that doesn't tell the full story because. Improv theater also takes place inside of some pretty tight constraints as well, mm. which is very akin to the design constraints of a of a design challenge.
1: True. So yeah. it
0: really is, you know. But it is a it's kind of part of the process, and I think that that's what I find most people need to get at ease with and be really told up front is that this is a process. In the beginning, we do need to go through this process of getting everything up up there. So we got to go through set period of time where we're not using our analytic brain, then we can impose some constructive mm-hmm. risk constraints. Then we can start to look and start to go through all of that. And then out of that will come X, Y, and Z. Yep. But unless people really know the roadmap to that, you know, I've watched people just, you know, the, the process person who might not be thinking of themselves as particularly creative
2: yeah. is now getting competitive
0: and trying to not mm-hmm. lose or this and that. and So I find that people need to be given a little, bit, a little bit of an understanding of the landscape so that they can see the roadmap. Here's where we're going. You can chill out. Tomorrow we're going to be right in your world.
2: Yeah, I yeah. mean, and I, I think there's something to constraints also around creativity, right? Like it's, it's not necessarily a free-for-all. Like no. even in, in improv, like people watch a music improv comedy show, And it looks like magic. You're like, I Mm -hmm. could never do that. Like, you're just making up. They're making up songs. They're making up dance moves. And they're all (laughs) choreographed. Like, what is going on? There's no way that they could have made it up on the spot. But there's a whole actual process. Like, we learn song form and song structures. We learn story arcs and story structures. And there are cues in ways that, like, our teammates know exactly kind of where we're going, and then we can kind of play and build upon that, right? So we're kind of like, yes, ending on top of all the Mm -hmm. things that are happening, but within a structure. Because people still need structure and you still need process, Um, especially, you know, in large organizations and things like that. You can't just totally throw process and structure out the window it just doesn't work and uh, so having those guardrails um, allows people to play within um, a structure and have creativity but it's also within constraints which is really important
0: you know there's a, a movie that is I, I recommend to everybody uh, I used to make commercials and music videos for years and uh, <laughs> Lars von Trier. so I'm going to give like a quick little history lesson on this Lars von Trier was the founder of a, of a film movement in the late 90s called the Dogma 95 film movement. And they had this manifesto that you'd only make your movies in real settings using natural light, uh, no post-sound production. Um, It was a very kind of guerrilla, naturalistic way of making movies. And so there's a bunch of Danish filmmakers who were doing that. Now, years later, Lars von Trier became the most famous of them, having uh, breakout hits here, like um, uh, the one with Bjork. York is in one. Nicole Kidman's in Dogville. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, it's a dance. Uh, Bjork is blind and she's a dancer. So, okay. So anyway, for people who are listening to this, you, you, <laughs> you got enough to go on IMDb. We'll get a bunch why. of emails on this one. <laughs> yeah, you IMDb. You can find it. Uh, Lars von Trier in Bjork, Bjork. But then he does this amazing film called The Five Obstructions where he gets his mentor who you start to find out is kind of a washed up alcoholic at this point, living Mm. in Haiti. And he he basically starts to say, hey, I'm making a film about you. Your only job is to do everything that I say. And what the film is about is making his mentor remake a film that he had made as a young man five times with five different sets of constraints.
1: Mm.
0: Now, Lars von Trier is also known to be very sadistic make okay. Nicole Kidman cry and do all these things like that so, uh, but he was actually teaching his mentor what his mentor had taught him is that if you give people completely wide open uh, no parameters it causes paralysis so if you give them certain constraints suddenly that unlocks the creative process so the first set of constraints was that you have to film your film in Cuba no cut can be longer than 16 frames which is half a second for those, uh, and so, in a few other constraints, and you watched the mentor have a meltdown. How the hell am I gonna do this? What's this gonna, my, my, my protege is being <laughs> such yeah. a maniac here, <laughs> and yet, by grappling with that problem, he ends up discovering this amazing, innovative way to remake a film that he had made 30 years prior. So, I highly recommend the documentary. It's, it's, cool. a, it's, yeah. a, it's a, one of the most beautiful treatises on the creative process and mentorship, and being a protege, and, uh, but uh, yeah, Five Obstructions by Lars von Trier. Highly recommend, but it gets right into the same world of how to improvise within constraints.
1: Well, there's, I, I hear two things in it. One is to put an overall process to something. Yep. Um, that way you can guide your ambiguity at, along the way, so you know kind of where you're going, but you don't know necessarily the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And then, the second is within that process, constraints are actually sometimes beneficial, even mm-hmm. though they seem very daunting. Yeah. Um, what is there any recommendations on an organization trying to come up with their own or adopt one in terms of obviously constraints come from the individual project, but something that constraints that you find that are useful to look at and then also a process useful to look at. I also at. even
2: think that that's, like, why design sprints or design thinking processes are valuable because it puts a process and sort of constraints around um, how to go about being creative. Mm-hmm. Like, even, in, like, with, like, management, like, one of my early learnings, because I'm, like, I I have always been a person that didn't need a lot of direction and I could just, like, take an idea and, like, Go do it, out. Mm-hmm. but most people can't do that and actually people want guidance they want the ability to play and create but like again i think it goes back to creating that like safe environment of like this there is a structured process on how we're going to do this we're going to be able to come up with something creative and there's going to be opportunities for that but that there is a like actual guided process and a way that we're going to do this and i think that that makes people feel supported and mm-hmm. safe and like mm-hmm. how people feel in sort of any sort of creative endeavor is, I think, super important. So, like, that's why I think those types of things for organizations sure. to do are just really valuable.
1: Yeah. Cool. It's interesting you bring up the word feel. Once again, it's that soft, emotional, but that it, that creates that culture yeah. and creates um, the
0: the atmosphere for innovation.
2: Yeah. And I think also, yeah. thank goodness I did music because then I value that more.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and we were talking about you were mentioning how your ability to listen to music is very reflective of how you look at an idea Mm -hmm. or how you look at a new objective so how just describe what you're what you were pointing to when you're saying that you're you're looking at like you might be looking at a score for a piece of music Mm
2: -hmm.
0: the same way you might be looking at a new business idea that doesn't have a business model yet or it doesn't have a lot of infrastructure around that, and just I'm just curious. I think people would be interested to hear the parallel that you're making between the two.
2: Yeah, I mean, music is very ambiguous, right? Like, it's there's concrete elements to it. There's a lot of like um, parallels between music and math that can be drawn. Um, so you can you're looking at a number of different elements. Like, it's not just the notes, right? It's also the harmony. It's also the lyrics and what's happening there—it's um, understanding the emotional context and being able to communicate that or understand it. It's um, you know understanding how the different harmonies and melodies intertwine with each other. Like when you're looking at a whole symphony score, there are so many things that are going on, um, and so being able to look at something and to be able to understand it from a multitude of facets has been extremely valuable because humans have a multitude of facets you know there are things that are concrete factual things about them but then there are things that are way more ambiguous and fluid and if you can understand how someone feels how they think how they want to be seen how they are actually seen what matters to them what do they need what do they think they need um and understand sort of the complexity of all of those things around it or even like a business right like what is the business trying to solve like who are they and like i think music allows you to ask a lot of like good questions Mm -hmm. around complexities and sort of start to organize things in a structure, right? I mean, music is literally organized sound.
0: Well, we are talking about IBM and I don't know if my friend was telling me the story with full factual accuracy. So (laughs) disclaimer on that
2: disclaimer, but, um,
0: he was saying that his one of his mentors, his, that was actually a, a piano teacher for most of his life, but was also a scientist, and that he'd been doing all this research on the role of arts in the business world and in the tech world, and that apparently there is a very high percentage of jazz musicians hired at IBM, and that they have a jazz department and play jazz on their lunch hours, specifically because if you think of things from a UX or... Uh, user experience design musicians have a very high facility with being able to follow multiple tracks of thought and see interrelationships and think of things over a lifespan of a song or how this interacts and how these two pieces come together or how somebody's going to be hearing this and they're very well steeped in a lot of abstract interrelationships
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and so i you know and there's also a huge uh a really high number of um I've always found this in college and it turns out it's statistically quite common is that a lot of math majors are also have very high math skills. Yeah. I music, music majors have very high math skills. No, it's
2: true. It's true um, because it's like similar type of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's also like you get really hardworking people too that are musicians because yep. you literally have to have the discipline of practicing your craft for hours and hours um, and have like an ambition towards like a singular goal of being really great at something. Uh, And so I think that also lends itself to sort of like the soft skill side of what makes like really valuable people on your team.
0: Yeah, and and I think that's the biggest misconception is there really is a rigor to it. It's not...
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. It's not about talent. We're artists,
0: we're being artists. No, it's actually not about
2: talent. Um, There's actually, there was a study that I love um, that was about, um, they did research on what made sort of um, sort of virtuosic musicians great. And mm-hmm. they actually did a study, and it had nothing to do with coordinate ability or talent. It had to do with the number of hours that they put into their instrument, and sort of like the magic hour was like 10,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really uh, putting in sort of the time and effort. Of course, if, you're, if you love something, right, you're going to put in that time and effort. Um, but it's really, it's about the hard work. Not it's so anyone can learn to play music, you just have to do it for 10,000 hours,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then when we zoom out to organizations, too, I think a lot of people have just have not never been given the um the runway or the, the access to tap their own creativity, they don't know themselves as creative people, mm. and so you know, at the end of the day, is everybody going to be virtuosic? Maybe not, but if you can improve overall your company's ability to ongoingly have creative sessions that come up with new ideas that are improving the company's internal processes, mm-hmm. uh, coming up with new ideas that they can begin to prototype and test out in the marketplace. And you have an entire organization that is generally thinking more about the end user And that they're invested in, and that they feel comfortable with that ambiguity. Mm. And they're given the tools to bring some rigor to that. So it's Mm -hmm. not just a free for all, but that they're actually out there discovering that and feel safe to actually throw ideas up there. And some will work, some won't, and some will be the thing that drives your business for the next 10 years. If you can create those conditions where people can improvise a little bit at work and are encouraged to do so.
1: And I know I've said this before, but it can be. Creativity could be in the form of a new Excel sheet, how they utilize it, looking at your customers, who you're going to pass that Excel data mm-hmm. on to. Um, so it doesn't have to be this big, grandioso innovation project. It can be at a very small level, too. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be within an area that's even thought of as creative.
2: That's a good point. It's like um, there's... Been uh, and some of our panels have come up the question: the difference between like iterative innovation and disruptive sure. innovation. Yep. And I yep. think being iterative is just as creative um, yeah. as something, and sometimes more creative than something disruptive. Like if you can exactly like if you can improve an Excel sheet. Because even like you know, and to take, tie it back to like actually doing improv, like I'm yes ending the entire scene is an iterative process mm-hmm. that comes up with really fantastic discoveries that can really. Add to the scene like the best improv scenes two people are sort of discovering together together things that are surprising through an iterative process and I, I think that's really that's creativity
0: yeah well and I think that that's the for me that's been one of the biggest realizations coming at all of this from an outsider's perspective too I can't it from the creative side and there is this inbred not kind of uh, agreed upon like this is how things are done and I think we're all, you know, people go through business school are also indoctrinated into that. But my realization, and this is what you speak to, is like, no, it's all been made up. The whole thing, the yeah. whole way through. Which is why we have so much disruption now.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
0: we have people saying, well, that's how it's been done, but look at this. Yeah. And we just call it disruption now. And I think that that's become kind of a freeing idea for a lot of people around me is that, oh, it's all made up.
2: I love that. It is all made up. Yeah. (laughs) Like, there's nothing, nothing exists at the beginning of an improv session. It's
0: literally a blank slate. So everything Mm -hmm. that's happening is just, there is no background for it.
2: It's true. Mm -hmm. Everything is made up.
0: Love it. I think that's a good note to end things on. Yeah, yeah. Francis, thanks so much for (laughs) taking the time to come in here. And and, uh, we look forward to seeing you very soon and can't wait to see what's going on with the next cohort.
2: Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you.
0: Great. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com.